Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I stood on the square in the middle of the night waiting to be collected and taken to a mother and baby home. I collected my husband's body from the IRA under cover of darkness. I opposed conscription alongside hundreds of local women. I was sent to a Magdalene laundry. I watched my children taken from me. I was a woman from care. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. Today's episode focuses on the lives of women in one small Irish town, Care in South Tipperary. Josephine O'Neill, whose words opened the show, gives you a flavour of what you can expect. The podcast came about when I received a copy of a book by the Care Women's History Group called The Daughters of Dunishgig, which charts the fascinating lives of over 20 ordinary women from Care and the surrounding area. I was really taken by the book and I'm delighted to have three of the stories told by the people who wrote them on today's show. The stories you will hear will cover very different women, from revolutionaries to nuns, but they share a common experience in that they were overlooked in the historical record because they were women. Indeed, before we delve into these stories, Josephine O'Neill, one of the women involved in the Care Women's History Group, explains this best when she talked about why the book was written. The project began when I was at a lecture in Care, our local history society, one of our lectures, and I sat there and thought, I will never be at a lecture on the women of Care because their history is hidden. So the next day I said it to a friend of mine and we decided to go look for them. And we decided that we'd find them in the census of 1901 and 1911. This was our starting point. And then I was joined, we found, formed a small group, Mary O'Donnell, Breda Ryan and Carl DeFalco. And our aim was to go through newspapers, archives, government records, libraries, find the history of the women of our town and put that history into an archive. But very quickly into the project, we realised there was a book on it. So after 18 months, we ended up with 40 chapters on 
the extraordinary women of our town, the ordinary women. And we launched this book um, in 1918 to mark the centenary when some women first got the vote. And it became a, a tremendous success. We've sold nearly a thousand copies of the book and we won Tipperary Book of the Year. And we're really proud that um, the history of the women of our town has been covered. And our hope always was that other towns would take up this challenge because care women are no different to the women in any other town. All the stories are there. They just need to be told. So we're, we would love if other towns would take it up. I know Cashel has begun and I know Kappa Quinn have a book on the history of the women of their town. I think it's a really important project for the future, especially for our daughters and granddaughters, so they know the women they came from. I'm delighted to have three people who authored chapters in the book on today's show telling the stories of an activist in the War of Independence, a revolutionary in the 1930s, and the lives of women in the convent in the town. Before we begin, it's worth saying if you're not familiar with Cairn, it's a very normal Irish town located in South Tipperary. But like most towns, when you dig into its history, you find fascinating stories. So we're starting with a woman called Marion Tobin. During the War of Independence, the 3rd Tipperary Brigade of the IRA were among the most famous units in the country. Individuals such as Dan Breen and Sean Tracy dominate the narrative, but Marion Tobin was key to the IRA's success in the area and paid a heavy price when her house was attacked by the Black and Tans. Her grandniece, Annette Condon, from Care, contributed a chapter to the Daughters of Dunishgig on Marion's life. And when we spoke, Annette began by explaining her granddad's early years. Born in June 1870, about six kilometres north of Care at Knockgraffan. The moat of Knockgraffan was beside their farm, which is considered an early inauguration site for the Kings of Munster. So she had a very rural, ordinary upbringing. To be honest, I did not realise my grandmother and Marion had come from such a large family. So that was uh, news to me. I had not realised the family was so large. Her parents, my great-grandparents, were Jack Crew and Bridget Keating. They were farmers from all accounts, you know, ordinary country people with no hint of any revolutionary background. Most of Marion's siblings would have emigrated to the U.S. In November 1902, she married James Tobin, who was from Tincurry, with my grandmother Annie as, as her witness, as her bridesmaid. Tincurry is a townland about six kilometres south of Cair, so as you're heading from Cair towards Cork. In the 1911 census, I found her listed along with her husband James, and they had three children. At that time, May was age seven, John was age six, and Ava was age five. So James Tobin, from all accounts, was very involved. Um, the Bureau of Military History documents the forming of the Tin Curry Company on the roadside by James Tobin in 1917. And this was later to become the Care Battalion and later still the 6th Battalion of the 3rd Tipperary Brigade. So the house Marion married into was referred to as the IRA Divisional Headquarters on the maps. And certainly from Marion's own words, his headstone records that he was a captain of the Irish Volunteers and in Marion's own words, president of Sinn Féin and he was in frequent correspondence with Archer Griffith after the 1916 Rising. What I thought was very interesting was this compared very radically to his brother John, who was a GP and a magistrate in England who and very well connected to the British establishment. So again, you have this dichotomy of two people in the same family 
choosing to follow different paths, which I find intriguing, um, how within one family, uh, you know, they can come to very different outcomes and very different opinions. Marion's life changed dramatically when she suffered two tragedies in close proximity, the first being the death of Annette's grandmother, as she explains now. So my grandmother, Annie, to whom she was very close, um, my grandmother lived in Cairns, so they would have lived relatively close to one another. She died in childbirth in October 1917. And then just eight months later, in June 1918, her husband died of cancer at only 51. And he left her with three children aged 14, 13 and 12. So she was well provided for, but it must have been a huge loss. She lost two very important people in her life within a relatively short time period. Yet seven months later, as a 49-year-old widow and mother, she was playing, as you said, her part in the, in the War of Independence, which I found remarkable. I think it was really she felt that she was continuing his legacy and that it was her duty to continue his work. The War of Independence began in South Tipperary when a shipment of explosives being taken to a local quarry at Solahed Beg was ambushed. Three days later, the men involved in that attack would turn up at Marion's door, beginning her involvement in the war. In the early hours of 22nd of January 1919, three young men arrived at her doorstep, cold, tired and on the run. Their names were Dan Tracy, Dan Breen and Sean Hogan. And they were at that moment the most wanted men in Ireland. They had just tramped across the galaxies, over the fields and along the railway line to care. And as Dan Breen said later, I will never forget her kindness to us that night. So in her own words, throughout the war, she provided shelter to the wanted men. She carried dispatches. She transported them. She treated the injured. She kept guns and ammunition. The family stories say that she hid gel ignite under the rose bushes, which were later used to destroy bridges in the area. Her garden and the grounds were used for meetings, to hide arms, conduct drill practices and mix explosives. I believe that they experimented there, particularly with mud bombs, which were used for the barrack attacks. So on several occasions, she would have saved their lives. She cleared away incriminating evidence. Her granddaughter told me that she would, if she was stopped by the British Army, she would distract them by throwing, offering them cigarettes. Um, I know from family stories she risked her life driving Ernie O'Malley when there was a price in his head from Tim Curry down to Kilbehany, where he would then escape over the mountains to Aragland. So from all accounts, she was very cool under pressure. She was quite charming in her approach. She was quick with a cover story. And as I said, you know, knew how to distract the British soldiers when she was stopped. Um, so from all accounts, her house was in constant use by the IRA from 1919 until 1923. And she was de facto member of the organisation. And the British Army would have raided her house on numerous occasions, but they never found any incriminating evidence. So she was well versed in clearing away. Her great grandson told me that her daughter, Ava, his grandmother, despite being only 12, um, that she played her part and she was the passport holder for the local IRA brigade and she was also given the job of taking care of tulip slips that would subsequently be planted on the rebels graves once they were killed and he also told me later when she was an adult that Ava, Marion's daughter, would place English stamps with the queen's head upside down on her letters 
even as a, an elderly lady, is a symbolic gesture of defiance. So certainly her, her children seem to be, seem to be also versed um, in, in her whole revolutionary uh, background. Um, I met Ernie O'Malley's son at a lecture in care, and he told me that his father um, used to receive postcards from Marion's two daughters while he was imprisoned in the current camp. Alongside her logistical support for the IRA, Marion also stood for election in 1920, something that was a revolutionary act in itself. Women had only won the right to vote in 1918. She was the first female councillor in Tipperary in 1920 and one of just 43 across Ireland. It was really amazing because just two years earlier, women aged 30 and over had been given the right to vote. And so Marion's arrival on the scene as one, one of the first female councillors in Ireland was, was pretty remarkable um, in the context of that time. With Marion herself a prominent figure in the Republican movement and her house at Tinkurry being used as a safe house for the IRA, it was somewhat inevitable that she would be targeted by the British authorities. This led to her house being attacked by the Black and Tans in what was a dramatic incident. Yes, it's a very interesting story. So over a period of 12 months, Curry was raided as many times. So she was very well versed in the Black and Tans arriving at her house. And as I said previously, no incriminating evidence was ever found. But on May, the 21, May 1921, in retaliation for the kidnap and execution of District Inspector Potter, which is in itself a terribly sad story. Uh, the Black and Tans arrived at her house and in reprisal for his death, 14 houses, including Tim Curry House, were destroyed. Um, according to the orders of Colonel Commandment Camerson. And what I found interesting was, as I said, Marion's brother-in-law was a GP and magistrate in Derbyshire and very well connected to the British establishment. And what I found amazing was the, the destruction of Tinkurry House, Marion's home, was actually discussed at Westminster. And I found this very interesting. I suppose last year, the year before, when I was doing, sorry, when I was doing the research, you know, all we heard from Westminster was about Brexit. And I thought, wow, you know, back then, imagine the, the destruction of a house in care was being, was being discussed in Westminster. So in the words of Dr. John Tobin, the military arrived and gave her an hour's notice to clear out her family, that the house was to be demolished. No furniture was to be removed, only sufficient clothing, no reasons given, nothing incriminating found, though the house had been searched and raided a dozen times or more night and day during the last 12 months or so. Before placing the bombs, the house and all its rooms were searched and every article of furniture was smashed with picks and hatchets. The beds and bedroom furniture, as well as all the old mahogany chests, were broken into matchwood. The new bathroom and bath and basins were broken to bits. In fact, everything in the house, upstairs and down, was broken with picks and hatchets so that nothing could possibly be saved or restored. Having thoroughly completed this wreckage, the bombs were placed in principal rooms and fired, and the dear old house and home blown to the four winds of heaven. Meanwhile, the widow and her little daughter, Ava Tobin, stood on the lawn as grim witnesses, carefully surrounded by the armed forces of the Crown. And of course, my father's story then was that Mary had actually pleaded with the blackened hands to save the piano for her children 
and had pulled out the piano onto the lawn and played God Save Ireland. I don't know whether that's true or whether it's been added to by family accounts over the years, but it makes for a good story. Annette finished by talking about Marion's later life. So she served in the County Council until 1925. Uh, Tipperary County Council pledged allegiance to Dáil Éireann and the Council officially refused to aid the British military. Marion Tobin was really at the centre of it all. So the house was rebuilt later in 1921 and completed in 1932 as a single-storey building. Marion moved to another farm close to Tipperary Town, so she moved there and then later to Limerick. And the house was put up for, for auction in 1942. And then she, she died in 1955 and is buried in Ballaluby with, with her husband. In the next story, we change tack to a very different women's experience, that of the nuns in the Mercy Convent in Care. While central to the lives of many women in the town, this was a much more complex institution than we might imagine. Josephine O'Neill began by explaining the background of the convent. So, um, convent, um, huge, imposing building in the town of Care, and it was a Mercy convent, and that was founded in 1827. The Mercy Order was founded in Bagot Street in Dublin by Catherine McCauley, and Care Convent came from the convent in Capaquin. In 1863, three nuns came to Care to establish a convent in Care, and it spanned a history of over 150 years. This central convent in Care led to the foundation of the convent in Port Law, in Clohine, in Ballyperine. And these nuns established schools in Care, Clohine, Ballyperine, and a secondary school in Care. They set up a convent in Haverford West in England. They, they founded Clonmel Hospital and Clohine Hospital, and they had a, an apostolic school which sent young girls out to America to teach what they called Indian and coloured people. So it was a remarkable achievement from a, a group of women in a town, which is, you know, it, it's not in, unusual. It happened in many Irish towns. So it was women who dedicated their lives to God to do good works of mercy. Convent life, however, was not equal. The class structure and wider society continued inside its walls. Josephine explained this through the differing experience of choir nuns and lay nuns. She started with the choir nuns who came from wealthier backgrounds. You couldn't just enter a convent, you had to have money. So I, you can see from, in Waterford, I saw one dowry for €300, Euro, which I checked would be about 36000 in today's money. You came in with this money, which couldn't be touched until you died, but the convent got the interest from the money you put in. And um, and it's, say, down from 300 pounds to 33 pounds. So that was essential, the dowry. Now, I know so one woman told me that um, in order to keep your your relative a choir nun, sometimes the nun, the, there would be a call from the convent to send something. Like one woman remembered her grandmother having to send candlesticks one Christmas and that being a huge imposition because they were very poor, but they wanted to keep her a choir nun because the choir nuns in the convent were the nuns who were the public face of the convent. They were the nuns who were the teachers and the nurses, the nuns who were the public face. This was contrasted with lay nuns who were treated like servants. They were the nuns who were, if you, if you compare it to society, they were the domestics of the convent. They worked in the kitchens and the laundries. They didn't vote 
in elections. They didn't eat with the choir nuns and they they had no say in the running of the convent. And they, I thought was sad, they didn't have any formation. They had basic education, but they weren't educated beyond their status. So they were, and I thought it was sad when, for instance, the care nuns went on holiday to Ardmore at the time when there were lay and choir nuns. The lay nuns went into the kitchen in Ardmore. So even though you were going on holiday, you were going on holiday into the kitchen of the convent. Yeah. So you, you wonder then, why did nuns become lay nuns? It's obvious why you'd become a choir nun, but and people would suggest that in, a, in an era of poverty, it provided you with a safe haven. You were, you, were, you were going into a place where you'd be provided for. You worked very hard and you, never, you, couldn't, you couldn't become a, a choir nun, no matter how long you stayed in the convent. But um, they were the domestic servants of the convent. And, and it was very obvious that they were different, whereas the choir nuns were the more powerful nuns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Josephine went on to explain why women joined the convent. The reasons were far more complex than initially appears. The first thing would have been religious. Obviously, you would imagine that you were more assured of salvation if you became a nun. The next thing was education and status. If you, you would remain single and still retain a status if you were a nun. And possibly the only powerful woman you'd have known would have been the local nun who was a teacher. So that would, you would, that would make you think, well, if I want to, to gain an education, then I would go into a convent. And if I need, if, if I want to power, a lot of, you can see it in care convent, a lot of nuns went in because their sisters were there. So it was a family thing. You could have three sisters going into a convent. In one family, you could see five sisters went in. So you followed your older sister. And there was, for many years in Irish society, there was this thing of having a nun and, and a priest and a family. So you were fulfilling the aspirations of your parents. I mean, it would be said that they were decent people. They had nuns and priests in the family. So there's that status. Um, there's somebody said to me, I thought this was really interesting. Yesterday I was speaking to a woman called Susie Cooper, and she said there was a mystique around it because... When you were received into the convent, there was a ceremony and you wore a bride's dress. Sometimes they had bridesmaids. So there was, if you're 16, 
and you're thinking about all that visual imagery of being received as a bride of Christ, that would really inspire you. Um, and a sad point that a few historians have made is that a lot of women died in childbirth right up to the age of, up to the 1950s in Ireland. So, so you escape that fear of dying in childbirth. And then, I mean, the, the question is to, would you be better off marrying somebody and having a whole load of children or going into the convent? I mean, the woman we found who, who attended the first Navajo powwow, when she was asked if she had any regrets, she said no, because I was the oldest of 12 and I was going to be married off to an older man. So that might be a reason. And sadly now, with there's a lot of research being done on violence against women during the War of Independence and the Civil War. That's coming out. And there's research being done at the moment on whether women on the women who were involved in coming them on and who were involved in maybe the victims of sexual violence during that time, that they went into the convents in the 1920s. Next, Josephine talked about day-to-day life in the convent. I mean, the, um, the women were, all of the women in the convent, I would say, worked really hard. One nun said to me that she was a teacher and you were judged in the convent by the copies you brought home. Correct. <laughs> so they were... They worked very hard. Um, the, the, it was very hierarchical structure within the convent. I mean, the Reverend Mother was very powerful and she was elected by secret ballot. And they, when they went in to train, they had two years of novitiate where you withdrew and you studied and you reflected. And then the community voted on you, on, on whether you were suitable. And they took four vows, celibacy, poverty, obedience, and service to the poor, sick, and the work of education. So temporary vows lasted from three to six years, and then you took your perpetual vows. But, I mean, the image people have of convents would be, obviously, that they were all very calm and centred and prayerful. But that can't have been true because... You had obviously, uh, you tried to live with um, adults. I mean, we went down at one stage to um, the diocesan archives and we found a nun, a sister Joseph. And she entered, and she was extraordinary. She entered, three nuns came from Capaquin in 1863, and Sister Joseph entered the next year. And she came from. A, a, a family, a farming family in Latin. And she, in the year she died, the other nun who entered with her, Mary Kennedy, died of pneumonia due to the damp conditions in the first house they were in in care. So it has to have been tough. Now, I can't find out, I assume she taught because the early nuns worked with the poor and they taught, but we found letters in 1887 when she's writing to the bishop to complain the Reverend Mother. And she refers to, she addresses him as my dear and respected Lord. You can see the hierarchy of the status of women in society. And then they went into a, they're part of a church that's very hierarchical and patriarchal. And then they're in a convent, which is very hierarchical. And she complains about what she calls the tyranny of the Reverend Mother. She said that this woman had availed of every opportunity to crush her, to crush her, 
And then the Reverend Mother said, the veil ought to be taken from her. And I, I, I loved her because you think she, she was actually making a stand. She was writing to the bishop. And at one stage, she said that the Reverend Mother ordered her to go to her cell and she refused. And she said, I said I would not, that no one is bound to obey when the superior is commanding what we never vowed. And then it's really sad, she says, after these conflicts with the Reverend Mother, she'd go to the church, she'd renew her vows and place herself in the hands of God. Now, interesting, I looked up newspapers for when she died. She died at only 56. And the only reference I found to her was her footsteps heading gently, her calm and tender face. <laughs> I thought this was written by somebody from the town as a tribute to her, but I thought... Little did they know this woman whose footsteps were heading gently around care and had a calm and tender face was actually writing to the yeah. saying the Reverend Mother is a tyrant. And then I found other letters from another nun who it would appear had been really important in the building of the convents in Clahine and Ballyparine. And she says... After 11 years of worry and care, I am threatened to be brought before the bishop and accused of, of squandering the means of the sisters. She said that the, the buildings are to be thrown up and the roof timbers returned to Waterford. So here's another woman in huge conflict with power, the petty authority within the convent, who obviously, I mean, 11 years of worry and care trying to build these convents, and then she's accused of squandering money. Given some women had very difficult lives, the question arises, why didn't they leave the convent? Very unlikely that you'd leave. One woman said to me that um, she wanted to leave. Um, she wasn't a care nun, she was a mercy nun in another convent. And when she went home and told them, her sister, who was married with very young children, said to her, I would prefer to die and face the disgrace in the town of this. It was really hard to leave. It was like, you have this person who's become, what do you do with somebody who comes back when you've had all this, the, the pride and the honour of somebody entering? So obviously, Sister Joseph wasn't happy, but where would you go? What would you do? Finally, Josephine details the final years of the Mercy Convent in care. The last nuns left in 2014. The convent doors closed and the lights were put off. And the community had hoped to get the convent back, but the, and the convent was sold. So it's empty now. And the women, some of the women are buried in the convent and then some of them are buried in the... As it became obvious that the convent was going to close, some of the nuns opted to be buried in the parish grounds. So you have well over 100 women who over the period were the sisters in the mercy and care. Next, we are turning to the third and final story in the podcast, that of the revolutionary Molly Fitzgerald. At the end of the show, I will explain how you can get a copy of the book, The Daughters of Dunishkig, and Josephine will talk more about how they set up the Women's History Group if you're interested in pursuing a project like this yourself. However, first to the life of Molly Fitzgerald. Morris Casey wrote her chapter, Morris is from Care and is also the historian in residence at EPIC, the Irish Emigration Museum. He started by explaining a bit about Molly's background. 
So Molly was the fourth of eight children, and she was born in June of 1899 into the family of Michael Fitzgerald, who was a labourer, and his wife, Bridget Burke. Now, of course, uh, the labouring class, the labourers in Ireland, would have lived very precarious existences. And you can see this really in the structure of the house in which they grew up, which was, even by the standard of the time, quite a small uh, and cramped dwelling for the size of their family. So for the first few years of Molly's life, the family remained in Ballydrehead, townland outside care, residing in the home of Molly's grandmother, living also with an uncle, Matthew. Between 1901 and 1911, um, this household, the Fitzgerald household, was struck by a number of tragedies. So first, her grandmother, with whom Molly had lived since birth, died in December 1902. Uh, next, within a month of the grandmother's death, Molly and the family had relocated and resided at Lower Care Abbey, where her father now had a position as caretaker. When Molly was just six years of age, her youngest sibling, Ellen, uh, died aged 10 months. And the fourth event, which was probably the most upsetting of all for Molly, was the death of her mother, leaving Michael, her father, with the six surviving children to take care of. And the house where they lived for much of this time, I visited it myself, it's in a state of semi-ruin. And um, at the time, it would have been a thatched cottage. Now, of course, there's an aluminium roof on top, but it's a small, more or less simply two-room abode where you could imagine that this family had rather cramped conditions. The family had um, quite poor land outside. It was one of the things that many people uh, commented upon the Fitzgerald's uh, early household. The land is quite poor for farming. And they had a cow, pig and hens, and yet the income would still have been quite minimal um, for a farm labourer. So when Molly would have been around her mid-teen years, around 15 years old, her older brother, who's two years older than her, David, headed off to London. And here David gets involved in Irish nationalist politics. One of the letters he writes home is requesting uh, Hurley because he wants to get involved in the local GA team. And at the time in which he was involved in local GA in London, there was another figure involved who David um, may have met at this point and who would have a profound impact on the future direction of the Fitzgerald family. That man was Michael Collins. David would become um, trusted and uh, would become closely connected with Michael Collins later in the War of Independence. During the War of Independence, uh, the Fitzgeralds were uh, heavily involved. David was involved with the IRA in Britain, particularly in Tyneside, and um, <clears throat> David's brother, younger David and Molly's youngest younger brother, Matthew, was also involved in a flying column in Tipperary. Given Molly came from such a poor background, Morris explained how he found some of this information about her life not in an archive, but in a house in care. Now, what's interesting is that, as is the case with so much local history, and why these kind of projects are so interesting to get involved in and so interesting to get off the ground, you simply don't know what kind of documents are sitting in people's houses. So I was fortunate enough to visit the um, Fitzgerald household. Um, one remarkable thing in the kitchen is that there's still a framed photo of the Irish Socialist Republican, Pat O'Donnell. And when I looked to the bookcase, you could see the political development and the political connections of the Fitzgerald family basically playing out in 
the books themselves. Um, I picked a Pat O'Donnell book off the shelf and I opened it up and there was a series of letters inside. They were written by, uh, they were signed uh, Michal O'Kungala and initially it didn't register and then I translated the name. Of course, these were letters from Michael Collins. And so these letters were describing essentially what must have been quite traumatic period um, for Molly and for her family, which is that David essentially was in the sort of maelstrom of the Irish War of Independence. And David's father, Michael, was writing to Michael Collins, asking him to uh, reveal the whereabouts or whether his son, um, David, was indeed alive. Michael Collins said that he had investigated on um, David's behalf and couldn't find any details on his whereabouts. But um, David indeed uh, was alive and uh, would survive, and would survive indeed to break with his old comrade, Michael Collins, along with the rest of the Fitzgerald family in supporting the anti-treaty forces during the Irish Civil War. Molly would become a revolutionary in the 1930s. Morris explained her path from rural South Tipperary into the world of radical politics. It's difficult to place exactly where Molly gets involved in radical politics. Uh, it seems that she was living in Dublin uh, by at least the late 20s, and if we consider her as, as being part of her brother's social world, um, David's, then this was a sort of vibrant and thriving world of the Republican left, which existed and which played out in, for example, a cabaret on Harcourt Street, where a lot of the Republican left used to meet in the drawing rooms of figures such as um, Charles Despard and Maud Gaughan, who had a house called Roebuck House, um, which was in Klonski, where a lot of the Republican left met as well. And this allows us to place Molly on the historical record. A very important figure in Molly's life was her older brother David, and it appears a trip he undertook to the Soviet Union would have a huge bearing on Molly's life when he encountered another Irish revolutionary, Charlotte Despard. In 1930, Molly's older brother David travels to the Soviet Union, and on board that ship with him, uh, the Soviet ship SS Korporatsiya, which navigated the London to Leningrad route during the 1930s. On board that ship is Harry Kurnoff, the Dublin Jewish painter, the revered feminist Tanishi Skeffington, and Charles Despard. Um, Charles Despard, for any of your listeners who may not be familiar with her, was an Anglo-Irish suffragette, um, a very staunch revolutionary, was involved in... Um, every radical left Irish cause you can think of from um, her relocation to Dublin in 1921 until her death in 1939. Um, and this is all the more remarkable because this is at the late stage of a long life. So she was exhorting revolution from platforms even into her late 80s. There'd be a, a very important impact from Molly of her older brother David's comradeship with Charles Despard. And that's because the, this aged Anglo-Irish revolutionary required a secretary, in many cases kind of personal care, to take into her staff. And that person was Molly. So Molly, um, in the last uh, era, really, of Despard's long activist career, was very close to Despard. Margaret Mulville, in her biography of Despard, has found out details of of how Molly, how Molly helped Charles Despard, for example, transcribing various revolutionary poetry that she used to write, and also just 
really acting as her, her personal assistant. When Despard moved to Belfast in the 1930s, Molly went with her. Morris details her life there and how Charlotte Despard's death set Molly on a collision course with her relatives. When Molly um, relocates to Belfast and she becomes involved in helping Despard um, in the last stage of Despard's activist career, for example, um, <clears throat> bringing her along to uh, solidarity meetings with the Spanish, uh, solidarity meetings in aid of the Spanish Republican cause in the Spanish Civil War. She also becomes connected with a man named Jack Mulvena, who is a local member of the, Be- of the Belfast uh, branch of Republican Congress. And he was um, a part of Despard's Belfast staff as well. One contemporary of Despard's in an oral history remembered this uh, duo of Jack and Molly being sort of flippant youths who spent their time riding in the staff car and smoking cigarettes. <clears throat> Despard, however, was clearly very fond of um, these staff members. And <clears throat> indeed, Molly uh, was with Despard in her last moments. Despard died in late 1939, and it was Molly who um, was the last person to see Despard alive. And she died after, I believe it was a fall uh, down her staircase. Um, and her last words were spoken in German to Molly, and they were sweet dreams and silent repose, apparently. Um, later then in Glasnevin ceremony where Despard was uh, buried amongst the other luminaries of, of, in the history of Irish nationalism, Molly laid a wreath for Despard inscribed from your own Molly. Uh, Molly's sister Breed as well, another sister of David, accompanied Molly at the funeral. And all of this shows the sort of um, the esteem that Despard had for Molly and the place that uh, Molly had uh, uh, within that that sort of that wider world, and the death of the spard um, opens up this quite um, sad epilogue to what we know of of Molly's life. The spard came from a wealthy background, um, although I would I would say that by the end of the spard's life, her her family fortune had been whittled down quite severely, and that. Inheritance was to go to um, Despard's staff, Molly and Jack. However, Despard's family, um, so the French family, and she was born, of course, uh, not Charles Despard, but Charles French. Um, the French family enter into a legal dispute contesting the right of Jack and Molly to um, inherit this estate. And really what you're seeing here I suppose is the French, um, the French family's distaste for their wealth going into the hands of what they would have seen as disreputable revolutionary agitators, um, and so this legal dispute drained really whatever money was left in that estate, and it's really unlikely that Jack or Molly would have received any of the money which the Spard had bequeathed to them. As is often the case with working-class figures in history, Molly's later life is something of a mystery. However, as Morris explains, someone listening to this right now, maybe yourself, might actually hold the answer to this mystery. Molly disappears. We haven't been able to trace a death certificate for her, and we haven't been able to um, find, for example, uh, we haven't been able to find out whether she had any children. It's unusual because the Fitzgeralds 
family memory and the memory of the Fitzgeralds in the local care in the local care area um, is quite strong. And I'll give you one interesting story that represents that. I gave a talk about David Fitzgerald and also mentioning what I knew about Molly a few years ago in Carehouse Hotel. And just after I'd began my talk, um, a quite elderly woman um, uh, came into the hall and sat down quite close to the front. When, I, when we spoke to that woman after the talk, she revealed that she was at the talk because she remembers in 1933 as a child being brought to David Fitzgerald's funeral in care. This would have been a funeral that would have been attended by people like this bard, by Hannah Shee Scaffington, by Pat O'Donnell, Frank Ryan, George Gilmore. Um, she remembered that event and she remembered being at it because her father told her that this is the death of an important man and it's important that, that you attend this. And then decades later, that woman in her 80s comes to this talk and, and to learn more about David Fitzgerald. So Molly's life and the sources for Molly's life are, are like that in a way, and that there are moments where we can find very specific and detailed information on, on where she was and who she was with, and then years of just total um, blankness and an inability to, to find out what there is. Um, if there if that um, historical shroud is to be illuminated, then it will be illuminated by people like that woman who came to the talk. Um, because Molly, you know, Molly may have been alive into the 80s or into the 90s. I believe my instinct is that she remained in Belfast. And so there may be people, maybe people listening to this um, who remember her, who know people who remembered her. And so if they are, then I'd love to hear from them. In a way, the most interesting aspect of the Daughters of Dunishkig was how it was put together. The people behind the book are just like you, people with an interest in history who wanted to tell the stories of women in their area. Anyone listening to this would be able to do the same. And I asked Josephine to explain how they went about creating the book. To do what we did, to form a group and then to a small group that's manageable and then to... It's, it's much easier than it appears because you don't think I have to write a book. You, you, can, you can say, well, I know certain people who are interested in history who would be interested in researching a particular area. Like, for instance, I was interested in the nuns, so I was thrilled to have that task. I really wanted to find out about the coming the man women, so I was interested. Um, um, one, Carl de Falco, was interested in the women from the town who'd emigrated. Um, another, uh, Mary O'Donnell, was interested in the Keeners. Frida Ryan um, did a house near her where the woman had a whole load of children in a tiny house. So, And then, of course, um, there were we, people we knew with expertise, for instance, people who knew about the men who died in World War One from the town. So then you have to say, well, they had mothers and they had sisters, so what can we find out about them? So you go to the person who's interested in that. So... That's how, and then the woman who, um, Lily Potter, who um, who took her husband's body, who keeps the local RIC man. I mean, her story was remarkable. His story has been told, but her story hadn't. So the stories are there. We know them. It's just to ask people to take it on. Somebody else came forward and said, I know about the jewelry nurses. So that was another chapter. And just, it's much easier than it appears. If you're interested in the project and would like to get a copy of the book, 
you can contact Josephine at joecasey09 at gmail.com. That's J-O-C-A-S-E-Y-09 at gmail.com. Finally, I would like to thank everyone involved in the Care Women's History Group, and in particular, Josephine, Morris and Annette, for their time. Until next time, Sloan. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.